Welcome, folks. Our topic today is divorce and remarriage. Uh, in marriage, a man and a woman, they commit to live with each other as husband and wife for all their life. In order for them to keep this commitment, that means that both parties have to remain in the marriage. But when one party decides to leave the marriage, either to be with another partner or simply to end the existing relationship, it becomes then impossible for the remaining spouse to faithfully fulfill his or her commitment. A husband, for example, cannot live with and act as a husband to a wife who is living with another man. Therefore, the question of divorce arises. And it's important to consider this question as we deal with ethical issues connected with marriage. Under, just kind of what we're asking, under what circumstances, if any, is it morally right to obtain a divorce and thereby dissolve a marriage? And if divorce occurs, is it morally right for a divorced person to marry someone else? Those are the sorts of questions we'll be considering over the next at least two weeks, if not three. Uh, now, God's original plan for the human race, as indicated in his creation of Adam and Eve as husband and wife in Genesis 1 and 2, is lifelong monogamous marriage. Lifelong monogamous marriage. Jesus affirmed this in responding to a question about divorce. We'll be looking at this in a second, but it's Matthew 19, 3-6. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And in his reply, Jesus rebukes and he corrects a first century practice of very easy divorce for trivial, trivial reasons. For example, the Mishnah, the oral tradition, said, um, the school of, of Shammai says, a man, may not, a man may not divorce his wife unless he is found on chastity in her. And the school of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she spoiled the dish for him, so if she burns his supper. Rabbi Akaba says he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. So she loses her looks. All right, look who's that beautiful person over there. I'll divorce my wife and marry her. But rather than entering into this crazy debate with the rabbis, Jesus affirms God's original plan for marriage, and he shows that it's still his ideal for all marriages. Matthew 19, 4. And again, we're going to get into this big time. I'll just read it to you, though. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. That's the foundational marriage text of all the scripture. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um... And I think it's essential that we begin this, this lesson on divorce and remarriage with a very clear affirmation of God's original intention. We want to, I want to affirm that very clearly to you all. That affirmation is that a husband and a wife remain married to each other for all of their lives, or as the traditional marriage ceremony puts it, so long as you both shall live. And although these uh, classes are going to argue from the Bible that God permits divorce as a remedy against sin in some cases, Scripture still shows that God's ideal is for lifelong monogamous marriage. Uh, God has placed high, high walls around marriage, and those high, high walls are his divorce laws. And God's divorce exceptions are so few, and they're so specific, and the concession of remarriage, or of marrying someone who has been divorced, is so limited, it's so exceptional, that we must not be asking, 
We must be asking not, okay, well, list, list to me right now all the exceptions so that, you know, what are all the loopholes that I can know about so that I can know my rights? What's my right here? But rather, what is it about marriage that makes it so, so precious in God's sight that it necessitates having those very high walls of divorce? What precious treasure is being guarded behind those walls, those high walls of divorce? What is it that I'm not seeing when all I'm doing is looking for divorce exceptions and marital loopholes as a means to serve my own self-interest? Because you often hear this kind, of, this kind of talk. I want to know my rights. Give me a list of what are the exceptions. Um, beloved, it's possible in order to preserve the sanctity of a marriage where a divorce is a uh, occurred for unbiblical reasons, that a Christian will be called upon by God to remain single the rest of their life, or else be reconciled to their former spouse. And God does not see that as an exasperating attack on our personal happiness, our sexual fulfillment, or our holistic well-being. It's part and parcel coming under the Lordship of Christ in all things and living a life of obedience to the teachings of Holy Scripture. Marriage is precious. God hates divorce. And as God's people, that's how we want to be thinking about marriage and divorce as well. So let's turn to the Old Testament Scripture concerning divorce. Actually, it's the only Old Testament law about divorce. Deuteronomy 24. And of course, as soon as I say Deuteronomy 24, we know immediately this occurs in a different period of salvation history than our own, right? Old covenant Israel is a theocracy. Israel does not have her own courts legislating laws for the people. The nation's laws come directly from God. And there's a distinction being made between the old covenant and the new, which under, we're under the terms of the new covenant. So, but this is the only Old Testament law about divorce. And we're going to see here, divorce and remarriage were practiced... And it was tolerated in the Old Covenant community. All right, so Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. And for this section, I'm going to be reading it in the ESV. I'm going to be kind of switching back and forth sometimes, mostly because of laziness, because Grudem has his in the ESV, and then that I incorporate my own stuff from the NIV from my sermon. So ESV, look at this. Uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, or something indecent in the NIV, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first guy, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance now that's the only text in the whole Old Testament right so um, we don't know what something indecent or some indecency in her that he finds in verse 1 What's that, what is that referring to we don't know God doesn't tell us the text doesn't say explicitly uh, which is why there was so much debate about divorce in Jesus' day. Because this is the only text you can appeal to. And if this were the only text in our whole Bibles that you could appeal to about divorce and remarriage, we would be living in the marital wild west. Um, because this is very ambiguous stuff. There's a lot of stuff here, like what are they even talking about? 
When we look at how this phrase, something indecent, is used in other places in the Old Testament, it refers to something shameful. The Hebrew is formally translated nakedness of a thing. And this precise expression is used in only one other place in the OT, Deuteronomy 23.14, where it entails the failure to bury human excrement. I'll just read that text. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with, and when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy, so that he will not see among you anything indecent. Same word. And turn away from you. But whatever something indecent might be referring to in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, we know that it's not adultery. We can know that because the punishment for adultery is prescribed in Leviticus 20.10. In Old Covenant Israel, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. The woman is not given a bill of divorce. She's executed, along with her adulterous partner. But if we look carefully, we see the whole thrust of this Deuteronomy text is not about the grounds for divorce. No, the thrust is that a woman who has been divorced for something shameful, something indecent, not... Uh, further defined, who then marries another man and then is divorced again by him, she must not under any circumstances return to her first husband. That's the thrust of the text. That's the concern of the passage. But, and, and notice the passage assumes that after the first divorce, the woman has a right to marry someone else and her second marriage is not considered adulterous, but it's legitimate. Uh, she becomes another man's wife, Deuteronomy 24.2. And there are other passages in the Old Testament which just assume that divorce was occurring among the Jewish people, indicating that even if God did not command divorce in any specific circumstances, he tolerated it and in some degree regulated it, at least in some instances. Let me just give you a list here, okay? Leviticus 21.7. The priests shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Jesus, what I'm saying is this verse just assumes that those who were not priests could marry a woman divorced from her husband. But the priests couldn't, but other people could. Um, Leviticus 22.13, But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Uh, Numbers 39. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. Deuteronomy 22.19. If a man accuses his wife of not being a virgin when they got married, and if her parents bring proof of her virginity to the elders, he may not divorce her all his days. Deuteronomy 22.19. This verse, again, just assumes that divorce was a possibility in certain marriages, not with priests in that sense, but Jeremiah 3.8. She saw that for all the adulteries of the... She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet, how, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So in this verse, God himself portrays himself as a husband sent away that is that is divorced. His, he has divorced his unfaithful wife because of all of her adulteries, that is, her worship of other gods. However, these Old Testament passages do not offer us much guidance regarding ethical standards for divorce today, 
in the New Covenant age because they assume that divorces would occur without giving us specific details about how to know when divorce is morally justified. All those texts I just read, there's no moral justification behind it. Right? It's, just, it's just assuming it's happening in Old Covenant Israel. And they also belong to the Mosaic Covenant, which is no longer in effect. So in summary, and we'll open up to questions, divorce and remarriage, it was practiced and tolerated in the Old Covenant community. Of that, there is no doubt. Again, the ethical standards behind it, it's very ambiguous. And then Jesus brings a lot more clarity. Right? So any questions about that, though? Yeah, go ahead. I've heard it argued that divorce in this context is almost a merciful thing in that the punishment is like for adultery was capital punishment and then the example given is Joseph when he finds out Mary is with child being a just man wants to divorce her quietly and the argument is the reason he's doing that is to avoid capital punishment so divorce is merciful. Yeah, see that's, well a couple of things. One is that this, that takes place in the New Covenant and it also takes place under Roman law when that wasn't happening. So, like, so... Why would that be in the New Covenant? No, like in that New Covenant era, I guess, age. You're right, no, I, maybe I misspoke with that. That's actually happening under Roman law. So actually, you're not having... You, they couldn't commi- uh, actually enforce their adultery laws with capital punishment. Those days are over. They weren't allowed to do that. Um, but you can divorce her quietly. Now, in what you're giving with the New Covenant, um, just give you two seconds... And we'll get to what Jesus says about that, because I think it applies to this. But you, people weren't killing their adulterous wives or husbands on, in the first century. But this, I, mean, I know that, that text is a little bit yeah. questionable in Mark, but yeah. The, the, in John, John 8? No, in Mark. Um, I the adulterous woman is John 8. Yeah, that's John Eight, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they're they're presenting him a hypothetical case, but they there's no that you could have like a like a lynch mob doing something like you know you're going to be stoning of uh, of of somebody like um, Stephen that kind of thing. That's that's illegal though. Like Rome didn't accept that kind of stuff. But that was but they're presenting Jesus with a hypothetical case. Moses says this. What do you say? Like here's the law of Moses, and we're actually we're in a in a context. It was like paying taxes to Caesar. You know, the same kind of question in a sense. Sorry, I didn't mean that scene. Um, oh. It was the woman that was brought to Jesus. And everyone was basically like, are we supposed to stone her? And he said, go in peace. That's, that's John Oh, okay, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you'll notice in your Bibles that's probably in a different font, right? Because it's actually, it's textually suspect. Um, so... But even if it's legit, it's still, you could actually see it as being, I think, almost in the same kind of context as should we pay taxes to Caesar or not. If he says, yeah, kill her. It's like, well, Rome has something to say about that. You know? Or it's like, are you, are you going to defy what Moses actually says, Jesus? You know, Moses says this, what do you say? You know, so it's, they think it's a catch-22. They can, he can't get out of that. You know? so, yeah. yeah. Okay, if you look at your handout, we're going to move to the New Testament now. But let's look at where it says biblical principles on divorce and remarriage. And this is going to give you the bird's eye view of where I'm going with this. These are my, this is my understanding. This would be Alex's understanding, your elder's understanding of this whole topic. We, we, I'm saying it like that because this could end up hitting you where you live one day. All right? 
marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman, and God's intention is for marriage to last a lifetime. Very non-controversial, I hope. Uh, divorce, though, is not always sinful. Some would say it is. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. When the divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to some other than the original spouse results in adultery. In situations where the divorce is permissible, remarriage is also permissible. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. So again, then look at the big picture at the top of that. We're going to look at uh, how the divorce is allowed in two cases. The New Testament teaches there are only two grounds for divorce to be valid in the eyes of God. Sexual immorality, porneia in Greek, and the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of their spouse. Now, of course, Christians have, interpreters have uh, different views about divorce and remarriage. You go down, the, down to the evangelical church down the street and you're going to get something probably a little bit different than what's being said there on some aspect of this. It's very possible. There's been extensive debate. Um, in the next part, I want to give an overview of my understanding of the relevant New Testament passages. And then next week, we'll interact with some alternative interpretations. My plan is, my hope, we'll see if this works out, is to get through what Jesus says today. That's looking less and less likely. And then, but then next week, it'll be Paul and what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. So number one. Oh, just uh, any questions about that before we're going ahead? Okay. Jesus allowed for divorce and remarriage on account of sexual immorality. All right, so we're going to look at first at Matthew 19, 3 to 9. You're going to want that text in front of you, which along with its parallel text in Matthew 10, 2 to 12, is the longest passage in the Bible dealing with the topic of divorce. As we'll see, Jesus was establishing a far stricter requirement regarding divorce than the standard taught by many rabbis of his day. Here's the passage in its entirety, starting in verse 3, Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall not leave his mother, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? The Deuteronomy text we just looked at. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus' statement, because of your hardness of heart, just to clarify that, that should not be interpreted to mean that only hard-hearted people initiate divorce. But rather, because your hard-heartedness, your rebellion against God, led to serious defilement in your marriage. That's why. All right? God, through the law of Moses, permitted divorce because sin can be so vile in a marriage that divorce is to be preferred over continued indecency. God was providing a partial remedy for the harm that a hard-hearted husband or a wife 
could do to the other person in the marriage. So Quinn, kind of getting to your question there, I think. In the final verse of this passage, Jesus provides significant guidance about divorce in the new covenant age. Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The first thing to notice is that Jesus decisively terminates all other grounds by which people were divorcing their wives because of liberal Jewish interpretations of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus says, no, the only legitimate reason to initiate a divorce is porneia, sexual immorality committed by one spouse. Jesus is certainly not here approving of easy divorce. According to this passage, he is prohibiting divorces for reasons other than adultery. He is directly contradicting the viewpoints promoted by followers of the rabbinic school of Hillel and the followers of Akaba. And the implication of Jesus' statement is that divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality does not actually dissolve a marriage in God's eyes. The couple is still in a one flesh union. I can say that again, that's the crux of everything. Divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality does not actually dissolve a marriage in the eyes of God. The couple is still in a one flesh union. This is clear because Jesus says that a man who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He commits adultery if he does that. You go, well, how? Adultery can only be committed by a married person. Right? This means that Jesus is saying that a man who wrongly divorces his wife has not received a legitimate divorce. And is in fact, he is still married to his original wife at the time that he initiates a second marriage. He's still in a one flesh union with the first wife. Right? That, that, that's clear. Right? And Jesus' disciples, they're shocked <laughs> at the strictness of Jesus' teaching here in comparison to the rabbis who are very liberal. Uh, and they say in the following verse, in, in verse 10, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Man, you're really you know, painting yourself into a corner here. If you get married, you, have, you only have this one exception. They jumped to the conclusion that it would, be, it would be safer never to get married than to be stuck in an unhappy marriage for one's whole life. But Jesus corrects their misunderstanding, explaining that the calling and ability not to be married was itself something that was only given by God to certain people. So look at Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying. That is, the saying that it is better not to marry but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So talking about the gift of celibacy. Something else to note. When Jesus allowed divorce because of sexual immorality, this was also a break with the Old Testament law under which the penalty for adultery was death. Right? So Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, you commit adultery, what's the, what's, what's the payment for that? It's death. Jesus says, no. Um, a bill of divorce is fine. You can actually be, a woman is not, uh, yeah, divorce is an option. That's what I'm saying. Does that make sense? I, I kind of messed that up how I said that. In the Old Covenant, kill them. Jesus saying here, divorce. There's a difference. Again, going to your 
questioner, I think, Gwen. But jump in there. Kind of, yeah, so a bit of follow-up on that. Um, I think if I'm under, another, I think what I've heard it argued is that you, you mentioned that how Jesus is correcting the rabbis, but it's a little different than correcting what Moses is saying, that it's kind of assumed in the Pharisees' questions that Moses commanded, and Jesus says, no, Moses allowed, and that's actually a key distinction, that in the Deuteronomy text, I believe in the King James, it mentions, it has the words like, commands them to get a bill of divorce, but that's not actually justified. So I've heard to argue that Jesus is not actually changing anything. He's actually exegeting the Deuteronomy. He's giving it the intent of that text. Yeah, so it's not yeah. that the Mosaic Covenant was, you know, here and there, and oh, no, no, I'm not arguing that at all. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, but there is something there, though, where there is, there's something interesting, hard to understand, hard to explain, going on, where it's actually, you're permitted to divorce your wife for something indecent, not further explained. And then there's other texts saying adultery is death. That's difficult to reconcile. But couldn't it be reconciled by seeing divorce as, like I mentioned before, a merciful alternative to that? Because Joseph being still under the yeah, he, but he doesn't have the option of, of, of killing Mary, though. Yeah, but say this could be, even if even if the Romans weren't involved, say say it was just you know, you know, yeah, the Jews were ruling. Yeah. He still, instead of wanting the death penalty, wants to quietly divorce her. Could that not be seen as part of the old covenant? I'm I'm not sure exactly what was on Joseph's heart with that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm kind of I'm trying to go from exactly what's being said here. I, I'm saying there's there's some tension though, saying. Divorce your wife for something indecent is permitted. The rabbis take that and go to town with it. Then there's other texts saying adultery is to be, to be stoned to death. There's, there's a tension there. It's just, it's just on the face of the text. It's, it, there's ambiguity, and that's why there was so much ambiguity in Jesus' day. Yeah, if she loses her looks, if she burns your supper, you can divorce. Adultery should be death. Um, and maybe they would make then in the first century, yeah, adultery is automatic divorce. They could say that too. Um, but you're dealing with two different kinds of examples there, I think, in, in my opinion. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's translated differently in the Septuagint than okay. that. Yeah. The King James Version goes adultery, adultery, yeah. adultery. It's too, that's too narrow, way too narrow. It's sexual morality. Yeah. Yeah. It's sexual immorality. Yeah. So, I mean, that gets, that gets down to, again, you start opening up more options, perhaps, and just a limited, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I mean, yeah, but... Uh, Pernay means sexual immorality, so it's, it's quite broad, you know? And now the wisdom of actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna proceed with this because my husband had the lustful thought, okay? No, you know, but you know. Um, <clears throat> in, the old in Old Covenant Israel, both the adulterer and the adulteress are put to death. The woman is not given a bill of divorce. She's executed along with her adulterous husband. Although it's unlikely that first century Jewish people living under the Roman government more, for more, more than 1,400 years after the time of Moses were actually carrying out the death penalty for adultery, the law was still there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But in the New Covenant age, according to Jesus' teaching, the penalty for sexual immorality is no longer death. 
but sending away involved in a divorce, right? I mean, that's non-controversial, I would think. That one, that one flesh covenantal relationship is severed in divorce. That's a very important point. The one flesh covenantal relationship with sexual morality is, it's, that actually is, a, I'm gonna argue, is a legitimate ground to actually sever a marriage. It's severed in divorce, that one flesh covenantal relationship. So th this has all kinds of implications. And it needs to be emphasized that when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery in, in verse nine, he implies the converse, right? Divorce and remarriage on the ground of sexual immorality are not prohibited and do not constitute adultery. Right? Okay, let me give you a, let me give you a similar example, all right? Suppose a professor says to their class, whoever hands it in, in a term paper after Tuesday at 9 a.m., except for the students who have received the deadline extension from me, will receive a reduction of one letter grade per day. That statement implies that a student who hands in a late paper but has received a deadline extension will not receive a reduction of one letter grade per day, right? That's what it means. In the same way, Jesus' statement, except for sexual immorality, implies that a man who divorces his wife because of sexual immorality and marries another person does not commit adultery. This statement from Jesus is also significant for the question of remarriage. This is the text, Matthew 19, where actually has porneia and remarriage in the same text. When Jesus says, and marries another, he implies that both divorce and remarriage are allowed in the case of sexual immorality. The divorce is legit in the eyes of God, and so is the remarriage. I mean, if divorce isn't legit, then, if the divorce is legit, then it's pretty narrow-minded to say, well, the remarriage isn't either. Someone who divorces because their spouse has committed sexual immorality may marry someone else without committing sin. They don't have to divorce, but they can. They're permitted to do that. In conclusion, if sexual immorality occurs, then Jesus says that divorce is permitted, but he does not say that divorce is required. Now, I'm going I'm to expand on this a bit and give you a bit of a paraphrase to kind of fill in, I think, the details with Matthew 5. We're going to go to the NIV text. You're going to see the whole sweep and force behind this Old Testament law of Deuteronomy 24, but just any questions about that text, the text? Not, not if this happens or that, but just the text itself. Okay, Matthew, go to Matthew 5 then. I'm gonna read this from the NIV. Jesus here is showing us the sweep and force of the intent behind the Old Testament Deuteronomy 24 law on divorce. Uh, and again, Quinn, this might be scratching where you're reaching here. Um, it has, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, quoting Deuteronomy. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What we have here is Jesus, he is our king. He's telling the citizens of his inaugurated kingdom on the Sermon on the Mount, Right? So think of Mount Sinai giving of the law. Here, here's Jesus on a mountain giving you know, his, I say this to you, right? He says here that sexual immorality is the only legitimate grounds for which a husband may divorce his wife or a wife her husband. Divorce is not required, it's not biblically mandated, but it is permitted on the basis, on, it is permitted in the case of sexual immorality. 
So allow me to give you uh, an interpretive paraphrase here. I think this can, this can simplify some stuff, okay? This is what Jesus is saying, in my opinion. Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24 that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, it's not just a matter of handing your partner, your spouse, a bit of paper and it's a done deal. There are proper and improper grounds for divorce. A person can't divorce their spouse for any and every reason, contrary to what Rabbi Hillel might say. I tell you, as the new lawgiver of the kingdom of God, that a man who divorces his wife for any cause that is not sexual immorality, she burns his food, she loses her looks, he doesn't love her anymore, that man causes his wife to become a victim of adultery. That is, when the husband remarries. She's a victim of adultery. That woman is still married to her first husband in God's eyes. They are still in a one-flesh union. And the woman who marries that man who improperly divorced his wife, she's committing adultery too. She's marrying another man's wife. How is that so? Because there never was biblical grounds for the divorce in the first place. Sure, the second marriage may be perfectly legal in the eyes of the state, but it's adulterous in the eyes of God. And this would mean that the man who divorces his wife except for the cause of sexual morality likewise ought not to remarry even as he ought not to have divorced his spouse. So, here's the question. This is a very important question. If a person is sexually immoral, let's say they commit adultery and their spouse divorces them, is the person who committed adultery allowed to remarry? Or must they remain single all their days? What I'm asking here is, can the guilty party remarry? Not sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wise answer. <laughs> the ESB says, whoever divorces the wife of that makes her commit the adultery. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some textual debate on that. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll say, well, that means that when she remarries, that's the case, or it's when he remarries, that's the case. That's basically where it's coming down. Mm. It's, it's very much a, you know, it's a one-way um, thing where it's all to do with what the man does. Um, so that, and I was thinking about, I was thinking, you know, if the man leaves and commits adultery, then could then the woman, you know, the woman has been committed adultery against, and she could remarry and she could obtain a divorce, but she could not obtain a divorce off her own back. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, you will definitely hear all kinds of Christians say, if, if you're the guilty party, you can never remarry. I mean, that's, that's pretty prevalent, actually. Um, the text doesn't attempt to answer the question. The remarriage rights of the sexually immoral spouse are not addressed. This passage does not plainly grant the sexually immoral spouse the right to be remarried, but neither does it flatly forbid it. And that's a very important point to recognize. I've heard many well-intentioned Christians say, once you're divorced, that's it. You can never remarry, even if the grounds for your divorce is that your spouse was sexually immoral. It doesn't matter. Both the guilty and innocent party must remain unmarried for the rest of their lives if they're not reconciled to each other. But we need to be very careful, and I need to be very careful as, a, as your pastor, <laughs> not to go beyond what the biblical texts actually say, what the Bible tells us. And that certainly goes 
way beyond what Matthew 5 says. Uh, we must be theologically precise in our understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage texts while maintaining a whole Bible balance. There's too much at stake. So imagine this. Imagine you're at work, you're having a coffee break, and, and an unbeliever comes up to you, one of your colleagues, and says, I know I was reading about the rules for some reason that Jesus, that Jesus laid down for Christians concerning marriage and divorce. If you don't mind me saying so, your, your religion, Jesus, I mean, he, he's very strict. Um, are, you, are you prepared to live your life by those very strict rules that he lays down in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? Um, I mean, what if your husband were paralyzed in a car accident? What if two years into your marriage he received massive brain damage and required 24-hour care? What if he didn't even know his own name? It's tragic. God forbid. It's terrible. But there you are. You're 25 years old. You're looking at the next 50 years of life shackled to a severely brain-damaged quadriplegic. You're saying that Jesus wouldn't want you to be happy? Jesus wouldn't want you to marry another man, to divorce and start again? It's probably what your first husband would want for you. He wouldn't want to, to, to sort of, he wouldn't want to subject you to a life of misery. See, it's very easy for us to look at Hollywood stars and movie stars as up, just getting divorced, remarried, drop a hat three, four, five, six times in life and, and condemn their behavior. That's very easy. Even unbelievers scoff at how Hollywood actors act with their marriage life. Um, but what about that example? You know, should that be an exception too? I mean, maybe, maybe that exception slipped Jesus' mind. Maybe we ought to do God a favor and actually write that part in our margins of our Bibles, right? Um, you know, brain damage, quadriplegic, put that in there too along with this text. And if we allow for that exception, what about two or three or four others that really tug at the heartstrings and, and make perfect human sense, perfect human sense? Um, maybe we should write those in the margins too. Let's say, getting down to brass tacks here, let's say Gretchen, a member here at New City, has met Wolfgang, the man of her dreams, a man who has all the qualities she could ever hope for in a future spouse. He's godly, he's involved in a church, he's handsome, he's got a good job. However, Gretchen finds out that Wolfgang is divorced. What concerns should Gretchen have at this point? What kind of questions does Gretchen need to be asking? What biblical texts need to be brought to bear? And what if she finds out that the grounds for Wolfgang's divorce weren't biblical? What would be the consequences of proceeding in marriage with a person who has engaged in an unbiblical divorce? Did God really say that's adultery? What is it about the nature of marriage that makes it sacrosanct? What makes breaking our marriage vows a great evil in God's sight? Think of it this way. If we're to understand the significance of the ring of power from the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, then we need to see how it fits into the overall context of J.R.R. Tolkien's story, right? That's that overall story. How does the ring and all that that ring signifies fit into that story world? In the same way, understanding what Jesus and his apostles teach about divorce requires setting their statements in the story world of the Bible, particularly as it relates to Genesis 1 through 3. And this, brothers and sisters, is what distinguishes us from mere cultural conservatives who promote traditional family values. I mean, there can be certainly co-belligerencies on that front, but we're very different. 
Our worldview, our interpretation and interaction with all of reality is informed in part by the opening chapters of Genesis. The exegetical difficulties surrounding passages that deal with divorce and remarriage notwithstanding, the main thrust of the scriptural teaching is very clear. Christian marriage between a man and a woman was ordained by God from the very beginning. In the covenant of marriage, the husband and his wife become one flesh. They're joined together by God. Divorce, the splitting of the one flesh union that God has willed is not part of the original plan of the creator. It's an adulteration of the divine will for husband and wife. That's what Jesus himself teaches. Mark 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now note the difference between that question and the question asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 19.3, where they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That, I would argue, is actually the implied question here in Mark 10. We know that because the question as it's literally framed in Mark 10 verse 2 was not a matter of debate. Of course it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Moses said so. Deuteronomy 24 is very clear on that point. But there was major debate in Judaism over whether a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And that implied question is controlling what Jesus teaches his disciples in verses 10 to 12. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife, and I would put in parentheses, for any and every reason, and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, for any and every reason, and marries another man, she commits adultery. It's the same thing in Luke 16, 18. Anyone who divorces his wife, for any and every reason, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman, in parentheses, who is divorced for any and every reason, commits adultery. <coughs> and we can take this approach because we interpret scripture with scripture. I'm not having my cake and eating it here too, okay? Some texts in the Bible on certain doctrines are clearer than others. Mark 10, 10 to 12, and Luke 16, 18 cannot, cannot be absolute statements with no exceptions. Anyone who divorces their spouse and remarries commits adultery, period. That can't be the case, why? Exactly. Jesus twice teaches in Matthew's Gospel that there is an exception, sexual immorality. We interpret scripture with scripture. The clear helps illuminate the, the not as clear. Verse 3, what did Moses command you? He replied, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. What Jesus is teaching here is that after the fall, God decreed and permitted divorce as one of the means to limit the foulness and the infidelity of this sinful world. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. Him doing that, permitting a man to do that, did not reflect the true creation ordinance. It was a realization of the sinful hardness of people's hearts. Divorce is not part of the creator's perfect design. It's part of the fall. Divorce is part of the fall, not part of his perfect creation design. And if God, through the law of Moses, permitted divorce, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred to continued indecency. I'm going to stop it there. I've got some more preaching to do. That you'll get next week, okay? But any questions on that before we... And the, the plan is I'm going to finish this off and then we're going to go to First uh, Corinthians. But any, any questions on that? Have we got, yeah, Pete? So, the exception of adultery, does 
Let, let, me, let me answer that question when we finish with Paul, okay? Yeah, bring it up again. I'm going to forget that you asked it. I want to, get, I want to do the whole, nine, the, whole, the whole thing before we get to that question, all right? Okay. Okay. Make his pronouncement. All right. All right, good. All right, guys, then, Lord willing, next week.